the Sunday Sermons Podcast. This morning we're going to jump right into the third in a series called Put the Hammer Down. Uh, You'll notice the logo is an open hand. Uh, You'll see why in just a second. I want to start with a story about my son, Drew. How many of you guys actually know Drew? Okay, a bunch of you don't. Uh, He's an awesome guy. But he's the kind of guy that you definitely want to have on your side rather than against you if you're in a fight. Uh, If you ever see him walking around, it's very gentle, very nice guy. But God has done this really awesome thing in all of us is he's given us an instinct that people call the fight, flight or freeze instinct. How many know what I'm talking about here? And, and thankfully, it's something that uh, happens, you don't have to think. In fact, it literally, when that goes off in your head, it, it, it tends to just bypass all thought. Here, here's why. If this podium was suddenly super hot, and I didn't know about it, and I put my hand on it, if it was really hot, my hand would be back here before I even knew about it, uh, right? I don't know what your re- reflexes are like, but, but if, if I had to think about it, it'd be like... Now that's weird. What is that smell? It, it's, almost, it's almost like this podium's hot. How podiums don't get hot? Oh no. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it's a blessing that that reacts. But the problem is when we're attacked in any way whatsoever, we tend to, unless we plan and pray in advance, we tend to react just that instinctively. We either withdraw or we run away or we fight. And all three of those can be incredibly dangerous in almost any situation other than trying not to burn yourself. When Drew was really little, um, I had already started carrying on a, tra- a family tradition. Dad had started with us, which is keeping our boys on, the, on their toes by scaring them randomly. It was a wonderful tradition and it's made them the men that they are today. But when Drew was about two years old, I heard him, I got home one day and I heard him upstairs playing really rowdy in his, in his bedroom. And I, I, I thought, you know, it's, it's a good time. So I, I, I snuck up the stairs and his door's like right here at the top of the stairs, waited till I could hear him getting close to the door, reached around, grabbed his little ankle and went. <laughs> now there were two things I didn't know about Drew yet. I knew them from that day on. Uh, first thing was um, his fight or flight or thing is just straight up fight, okay? <laughs> just go just instantly. If he has time to think, he's gentle and kind. If you attack him, you better watch out. Second thing I learned that day was that he was holding a bat. <laughs> and thank God it was a plastic bat or I would not have been here today. We're, we're talking about putting a hammer down. If this had been in his hand, I don't care, two years old, that would have been all of me. It took him a good 10 seconds before he even realized he was hitting somebody and then it was his death. Sharon Strand Allison is the founder and executive director of the Powerful Non-Defensive Communication Institute, PNDC. She's an expert on not being defensive and improving your communication across the board because of that. She says it's the same thing. This is not something I make up. We surrender or we withdraw or we counterattack, whether it's a military thing to armies, to people, to families, to whatever it is, that tends to be where we go. We have to make intentional choices in advance to bypass that. Okay, I'm going to say that a couple times, but that's, are you hearing me on this? The only way to bypass that is you have to make some choices in advance. 
You, you make some landmark decisions, if you will, in advance. That's, this is how things are going to go differently. We must pray and plan our reactions before we're attacked. And that's why this, this week's thing, what put the hammer down means. I know it sounds kind of stretched, but it, it's don't panic. And the way it's don't pa- put the hammer down is this. I know Thor in the MCU makes it look really cool to fight with a hammer. But in real life, if, if you're fighting somebody with this, it's probably because you just panicked and that's the only thing you could grab. Are, are you with me? This isn't really the most efficient or the best way. And if Drew would have had this that day, I wouldn't be here to tell you that story. The entire story of our family and my and his relationship and every life he'd ever touched and every life I'll ever touch would be totally different. And it would be my fault, not his. But it's a good thing he had a plastic bat instead of this. So if you realize that you're using this morning, you realize that you're hearing this, the Holy Spirit is talking to you, and you realize that when you feel attacked in any possible way, that you're picking up weapons that could actually do some serious damage, mess up your life and mess up everybody else's life, you need to put that hammer down. You can't panic. You can't allow yourself to just let your, your instincts drive the train. Lashing out in the moment always makes things worse. And defensiveness, all defensiveness ever does is, is distance us from anything that could actually help. Back in Deuteronomy 10, Moses said this to the people of Israel. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Once again, we see this pattern that Moses is giving them. God is giving them through him. And Lou, if you're watching today, so you're not in your regular spot. Thank you for the gavel that he made for me. Isn't this cool? What he's asking me to do is put that hammer down. Make the call in advance. God makes the call about everything in our lives. And also, that includes the resting and the whole other thing. But he goes on. Here's the reason we can do that kind of a decision in advance. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, and take your oaths in his name. This is the only way that we can bypass the kind of just instinctual kind of way of living that we're all prone to. It's to, in advance, on purpose, choose to pray and make habits, create things. When this happens, this is how I react. We think about it in advance and we, make, we take our lives a different direction. Moses wasn't always like that. In Exodus chapter 2, you see the story of his life up until he began to lead Israel. You see that he was miraculously born. Well, that wasn't miraculous. He was saved. Anyhow, you've probably heard that story. He, he didn't get killed when he was born. And, but then it took about 40 years later before he actually did anything to try and help his people. 
And it started out good. That story, if you, as you read that story, I hope you go back and read that today. Exodus chapter 2. starts out good. He gets out of his comfort zone. He gets out of the palace. He gets out of the, the place of privilege that he was living in for 40 years and actually takes a walk. And I, I guess for the first time, finally sees the actual suffering of his people. He actually gets out of the walls. And so he actually sees the suffering, and he's drawn to step in. The problem was he didn't have a plan. The Bible doesn't say he used a hammer, but it was probably that kind of a thing. He used whatever he had on hand, maybe literally his own hands, but he killed an Egyptian. And because of that, he, for another 40 years, he forfeited his chance to lead his people. He ran away. There went the flight thing. That's the kind of thing that happens when we, even when we're trying to do the right thing, but we don't surrender it all to God in advance. When we don't have a plan, we don't have skills, habits, things that we're planning to do. Moses was a pretty good example in general, but the only perfect example is Jesus Christ himself. And here's what he said. Would you say it out loud with me? Turn the other cheek. Now, this idea of letting God make the call, whether we like it or not, this is one of those verses that for a lot of us is really hard, right? Amen. It's a hard one. Turn the other cheek. We don't, we don't really like that. But, but if we understand it, it makes it just a little bit better. Jesus did not, listen to me, Jesus did not tell us to stay indefinitely in abusive situations. That's not what turn the other cheek means. Jesus did not tell us excuse me, to let someone beat you up, even once. What this is, is the ultimate power move. Jesus was wise, and he knew that defensiveness, hear me on this, defensiveness, whether you're guilty or not, defensiveness always looks like guilt. The person who's accusing you of something, who's yelling at you about something, who's fighting you about something, who's attacking you for whatever reason, deserved or not deserved, if you go, hey, 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 it's not my fault, that convinces literally no one. You being defensive makes you look worse to the person who's attacking you. And Jesus knew this. But what would happen if somebody hit you and you just go, oh, you want to hit this side too? That shows that you're in control in a way that most of us never could be. You're in control in a way that takes some supernatural help. You've got something going on that most people don't. It changes the situation. The truth is, brothers and sisters, we can never control our situation. We can never control our environment. We can do nothing to keep other people from attacking us sometimes. But we can control ourselves. With the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of other things God's put in us, besides the fight or flight or freeze instinct, we can control the situation because we're in control of ourselves. And that's important. And that's the heart of why Jesus said this. And he lived this out himself. Watch this. He said in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. It's a totally different thing than just 
bunch of people killed Jesus, even though he was powerful, supposedly. They, they killed him. He chose it. He had authority. This is the same authority that God gives to us as his children. We have control over our actions, even if we don't have the control over others. Jesus, remember when he got arrested? Remember what happened? Peter pulls a sword. Jesus actually picks up the ear off the ground and heals the guy. He says, put that sword away. And he said some things, depending on which account you're looking at it, you put it all together. It was a really interesting night. Because he also said, do you not know that I could just call on my father and he'd send down thousands of angels to protect me? And he asked them, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with weapons? Do I look like the kind of person who's trying to do what I'm doing here by violence? He, he, he was going out of his way to let, let us know and let them know in that moment that this, he doesn't play by the same rules. He doesn't do things the way we tend to do things, the way we instinctually do things. He does it a whole different way, but he's completely in control. And, that, and the dream, brothers and sisters, the dream that God has for all of us always is that we're going to grow up to be like Jesus. The dream that God has for each one of us is that somehow or another, we're going to overcome all the immaturities and all the humanity and all the other stuff that controls us most of the time. And we're going to be like Jesus. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. He's talking about when that happens, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And notice not only the truth there, but how Paul is communicating. This is so beautiful. He's, he's demonstrating how to, the best way to actually persuade somebody. He's offering a different way. He's not yelling at them. He's not attacking them. He's not saying, you guys are the most immature little babies I've ever seen in my life. Stop picking people apart. He's saying, you know what? There's a chance here, people, brothers and sisters. One day we could be as mature as Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? One of these days we're not going to be tossed back and forth. He's not saying, look at y'all. Y'all are tossed back and forth like a little boat on the waves. Y'all are like little babies. That's not what he's saying. He said, there is hope that one day nothing's going to affect us. Because we're the people of God. That's a completely different way of communicating, and it's a power, powerful truth at the same time. Another expert on not being defensive and instead being confident and bold and just living life in, intentionally is a guy named Jim Tam. Jim Tam tells a great story about chickens. They did some research, and how many of you guys raise chickens? Any? I know a few of you. Okay, so you guys know way more about this than I do. But apparently there's what they call green zone chickens and red zone chickens. And in any chicken yard, there's what there's called a pecking order. Most of us have probably heard of that, right, a pecking order. But the idea is the red zone chickens, they kind of rule the roost. You probably heard that, that, that phrase too, right? 
They rule the roost, but they do it by hurting the other chickens. They lay more eggs because they make sure they get the most food and they make sure they get the spot to lay the eggs in every day. They're, they're aggressive. They make themselves look better by making other people look bad. They're the attackers. Are you following me on this? Okay. So what they did was they said, I wonder what would happen if we separated those two out. What would happen if there's only green zone chickens and in another group there's only red zone chickens? So for five generations of chickens, they just methodically separated them. That's the red zone chickens. That's what happened. They literally killed each other off. There were just a couple left at the end, and they weren't good for anything. That should tell us something about what trying to make ourselves look better by making other people look worse, by fighting for us, by trying to make ourselves number one. That's where it takes you. I know it's chickens, but does this make sense? But the green zone chickens, without having to just defend themselves all the time, they just got busy. The green zone chickens, this is them. There were more of them. They laid eggs more consistency, consistently. They ate the good food. They had better eggs. Everything was better for the green zone chickens because instead of trying to protect themselves all day, they just got focused, more focused than ever, on doing what they were supposed to be doing, which is laying eggs. I know that's a story about chickens, but does that say anything to you guys? That says a whole lot to me. In the Bible, there's several red zone chickens that we absolutely must not be like. The Pharisees, for example, classic red zone chickens. Is it, do you understand what I mean by that? They're constantly picking people apart, trying to make themselves look better by making other people look worse. And here, here's, a, here's a brief glimpse at a story we looked at two weeks ago. In Matthew 12, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered... Watch this. Make sure I get this right. Will you idiots leave me alone? What is wrong with you people? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Let's try that one more time. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did? And he starts telling him a story. Remember that story? Here's what happened. David was running from King Saul. And he, he and his men hadn't eaten for quite a while. And they go to the priest to get some help. And the priest said all they had left was the bread in the holy place. And you're not supposed to just hand that out. That eventually went after a couple of days and went to the priest. But you weren't supposed to just hand that out. But he, he decided in the moment it would be a better thing to feed somebody who was really hungry to help someone who was being oppressed than it was to just follow that particular little rule so strictly that you didn't do a better thing. And so he gave him the bread. Jesus tells that story to them and he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another classic red zone chicken is mentioned in this story. If you go back and I encourage you to do so, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22 is that story that Jesus is referencing. And there's this guy named Doeg the Edomite. And in chapter 21, when it's telling that story I just told you, it just casually mentions that Doeg the Edomite was there at the temple and saw this happen. The Edomite means he's not even one of the people of Israel. He's from the people of Edom, but he's loyal to King Saul, who was absolutely crazy at this point. 
He goes running back to Saul. And in chapter 22, Saul's like, where can we find David? Who's going to help me? He goes, I know where he is. He just got some bread from the priest. And by the end of this story, here's what happened. Doag the Edomite actually goes back and slaughters not only that priest, but his whole family and his whole community. Eighty-five priests and all of their families and all of their children and all of their animals just destroys this entire community called Nob. David actually wrote a psalm about Doeg the Edomite. You may not realize that. Psalm 52 is actually about him. And when he says things like, why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? He's talking to Doeg the Edomite. And in the middle, I love this, though, and this is going to turn a corner. We're going to start wrapping up. We're not at the very end yet, but I hope you guys are still with me. Are you still with me? We good? We're tracking? Okay, this is important. We're going to... This is where we we figure out exactly how we're going to apply all this here, these last few moments together. But David says this. He says, he doesn't compare himself to Doeg the Edomite and say, I'm so much better than you. What's wrong with you? You're such a terrible loser. Here's what he says. He says, one of these days, the righteous are going to look at you and say this. Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Here's a red zone chicken. That's not okay. That's not who we're supposed to be. By the end, though, I love this. This is cool. By the end of this psalm, and you can see this happen in a lot of the psalms if you pay attention. David starts writing the song, and I know he had help by the, by the Holy Spirit, but you can see, like, at the top, he's like this. He's, oh, I love God and everything. And by the end, he's like, I'm going to kill all my enemies. He'll just totally derail. This one is the other way. He starts out, oh, you mighty hero, I'm going to get you. And by the end, he derails into this is who I am, and he prays a prayer. The last couple of verses of Psalm 52 says, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust God's unfailing love forever and ever. It's not about trying to attack others and make himself look better by pulling them down. He's about just letting God make him who he needs to be and do what God wants him to do. And then he prays, For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. In Ephesians 6, Paul, this is a very familiar passage. But sometimes I think we miss just how practical this is. Paul says, talking about conflict, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, notice he doesn't say if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth, buckled around your waist. The one part of this armor that's completely surrounding him. Nobody can attack without, from any direction without at, there, there's some truth in between you and them. That's very important imagery. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We're going to look at the rest of this in a moment. But first, let's notice this. This is the strategy. This armor is designed that we fight together, not against each other, together. 
The, the Roman armor that he's using to, as an imagery, as a, as a metaphor here, it's, it's designed so that as you advance together, as you go forward together, as you all hold up a shield together, as you all wear the armor that's almost 100%, the only thing behind you is the, is the, the belt. Everything else is in the front. Are you following me on this? And as you move forward together, you're a, you're a, you're a pretty formidable wall. If you turn and run or you start fighting each other, you got nothing. It's very important. Let's say this out loud together. Fight the devil together and stay focused. That's the dream that Paul's talking about. See, here's the thing. This is the truth that I hope you get today. We can do this. We can stay focused no matter who attacks us and why. We can focus. And no matter what anybody else says or does to us, we all, through the self-control that God gives us, through his spirit inside of us, we all can actually stay at what we're supposed to be staying at no matter how we're attacked. That is actually something that's there. And also, there's another thing we can do. We can actually fight side by side or back to back. We can fight together, not against each other. We can fight the devil, the one who's actually against us, instead of each other. This is possible. We've got to own this. This is not just this impossible dream that Paul's just throwing out there like, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if the world was this way? He's saying it can be this way. He's not attacking you and saying, you are so not like this. What is wrong with you? And I'm not saying that this morning either. He's saying, I'm saying what Paul's saying. It could be totally this way. However, we're already like that. That's the right direction. Hallelujah. God bless you. Good job. And however, it's not. Let's look at this again. He says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Not just deflect them. Our faith can actually make them go out. Make them ineffective, not just against us, but against anybody else. They deflect and hit. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. We not only have the ability to stay in contact with each other, to fight side by side and back to back, but we're in constant communication with God himself. That's what makes all this actually possible. We've got to fight together. And, 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 and here's got to be some of our shared goals. This isn't the whole gospel. This isn't the whole thing. But listen, we've got to fight for things like relationships. When you're in relationship with another person in church, a friendship, somebody at work, somebody in your family, a relationship, you don't fight against them. You fight with them to save that relationship. You with me? If your marriage is struggling, you don't fight against the other person in that marriage relationship. You fight together, side by side or back to back to save that relationship. And you call on the power of God to help you with that. If there's division, we fight against that. That comes from the enemy, not from us. We don't take sides and start fighting each other. We fight together against the division itself. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
And by flesh and blood, he means your own flesh and blood, your own instincts, your own desires, your own sinful nature, your own, and also all the other people that you see walking around with flesh and blood. That's not where the real conflict is. It's against the devil himself. And we fight side by side or back to back against that. We fight for what God has called us to do. We fight against anything that distracts us from that. Julian Treasure is an expert in communication across the board. I think it's really interesting that it, what he calls the seven deadly sins of communication are kind of the opposite of the armor of God. There's four things that are attacked things. Uh, gossip, complaining, lying, and negativity in general. Those are things that we tend to attack using words. Those are almost the exact opposite of those elements of the armor we just looked at. And then the things that we use to protect us is usually judging other people, being really dogmatic about what we believe, or making a bunch of excuses, being defensive. None of those work. And they're the exact opposite of the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and everything else that we actually have. What God has given us, brothers and sisters, it works. It could work. It sometimes does work. It could work every time if we embrace it and use it the way he designed it. That's the dream he has for us this morning. So here's where we're at. We're going to wrap up. Don't panic. If you realize this morning that you're being attacked, maybe your, your relationship with God, your relationship with somebody else, some other way, you're being attacked. Notice what's in your hand. And if it's a hammer or anything else but the sword of the Spirit, put that hammer down. Do you understand what we're saying? Maybe you realize that you have taken up something that could be super dangerous. It might actually just ruin everything if you actually use that thing you want to use against that person who's been hurting you. You need to put that hammer down. Turn the other cheek instead. It's not weakness. It's the ultimate power move. It's the one way that you actually can control any part of any situation is you submit to God and his moral boundaries and you make the choice that you're going to do it that way. And if you feel like the church or you as an individual, or you and your friends, you and your growth group, you and your family, if you feel attacked, Let's not just attack right back. Let's not be red zone chickens and kill each other off. Let's not kill off our nation. Let's not kill off people who disagree with us about anything else. Put that hammer down and instead, let's wear the armor of God. Let's fight side by side and back to back, staying in communication with him. This is a possible dream. This is exactly what God is dreaming will happen with his people. Whatever you need to do this morning, take a step in that direction. Please take it right now. We're going to sing one more song. It's a, it's, a, it's a song of invitation, a song of commitment. And I ask you to please make that commitment. You can come forward. We'll walk you through that. Or you can stay right where you are, depending on what that commitment is.